Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. This is one of the three accounts of Jesus entering Jerusalem just five days before the crucifixion. And each of the Palm Sunday accounts is very interesting because they show us and give us insight into the heart of Jesus. It's fascinating uh, in this text and in the other three gospel texts that Jesus' emotions, if we can speak that way, because he was a man just like us, he was flesh, God in flesh, he inhabited a body, he felt all the feelings and all the emotions that we feel, and yet he was God without sin. So we can talk about the emotions of Jesus because the emotions of Jesus are obvious here. And his emotions in this text, just in about 15 or 20 verses, just in the span of about an hour, go from hearing the cheer and the praise of the people to weeping over the city of Jerusalem, to going into Jerusalem and being righteously angry at what was going on in the temple and overthrowing the tables and and basically uh, destroying the the illegal commerce that was going on in the temple because it was disrespectful to his house. A wide variety of emotions, from joy to sorrow to anger. And that tells us that the spiritual climate of the day was very, very inconsistent. And it tells us how deeply Jesus felt. We don't talk a lot about the depth of Jesus' emotions because I think it makes us nervous that it, it makes him less than God. But as God in flesh, he felt these things deeply. And that speaks to us and tells us about him. And it shows that this is why he came. He came to be our substitute. He came to be our sacrifice. He came to be the one who would bear our sins upon himself. And, and even during this account, even as he heads toward the cross, even as he goes through the final uh, week before the resurrection, the people that are around him don't really understand who he is. And they don't really understand what he was doing and what he was called to do. The Luke passage that we'll look at in a couple minutes says the people called him a king. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But the impression that they had of what a king would look like and what a king would do was very different than what we see here. Jerusalem was used to seeing kings. It was one of the primary capitals of the world. So it was not unusual for them to see kings come into town, either the king of Israel or the king of another nation. And those kings would come in with great uh, pomp and circumstance. They would come in riding a great white stallion and there would be an entourage of people and bodyguards around them and, and important officials. And, and then you'd have your sycophants that were there and tried to give honor to the king. The king would never come in in the fashion that Jesus comes in. There would always be just a great grandeur to it. But Jesus, we're going to see in a minute, doesn't come into Jerusalem like that. He's not the type of king that the people expected. He wasn't what they were looking for. And yet, as people's expectations were changed in terms of what they wanted, we need to understand this morning that Jesus was exactly the kind of king that all people need. Let's look at the text here. Matthew's historical account. This is what actually happened back in uh, 1st century A.D. in Jerusalem. Verse 1, chapter 21. When they had approached 
Jerusalem and come from Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Disciples went, verse 6, and did just as Jesus instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats in them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, part of the reason why the crowd goes from what we see here, this loud, exuberant, overwhelming praise of Jesus to crying, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, we want him dead, in a matter of less than a week, is because many had a selfish, misguided understanding of who Jesus was. Now, that's not untypical of mankind. If we could somehow this morning tangibly and incontrovertibly prove to to people that God is real, if we could show it somehow, if we could prove to people that God has a strong interest in every person who lives, what would the overwhelming majority of people want from him? If you could take your neighbor who is an unbeliever like this guy in the video and you could prove to them God does exist, Jesus is real, and God has an intimate interest in your life and wants to save you. If you could prove that, what would be the first thing people would ask for? Would their first impulse be to say, I am a sinner and I need salvation? Or would their first impulse be to say, I want to be holy like God because I am not holy, I am lost, and and I need God to change me? Or would the first impulse be much more self-serving? Because humans are proud, right? I'm proud. I'll admit it. You're proud. I'll admit it for you. Humans are proud. We don't like to admit we're wrong. We don't like to admit we have failed. We don't like to acknowledge that sin even exists and that we're very guilty of it. So most people view God with a different purpose. God should give me what I want, and he should do what I want, and he should never allow me to go through anything difficult, which, if we really analyze it, is the height of self-centeredness. Now, the proof of that is that one of the most fundamental objections that people have to Jesus Christ, one of the most fundamental objections that people have to the Bible and to God is, is the objection that How can a loving God, you know the rest of the sentence, right? How can a loving God allow pain and suffering in the world? And we puff out our chests and say, well, that's a very good question. And that's very analytical. It's very logical. And and it's justified. But the underlying philosophy behind it is that we want God to work for us. So he better not allow us to have any trouble because that would invalidate him as God. 
Many people simply want God to do what he does and to not cause us any problem and never let us experience something we don't like. Because if we, if he does something we don't like and he allows us to go through difficulty, there's no way he can be loving and we're not going to accept him like that. The problem with that is it shows no personal responsibility for us. There's no connection to my behavior and God's holiness and that the fact that we're in such a mess in the world this morning is not because God's insufficient. It's because we're insufficient and because we're full of sin and because we have rebelled against God. It is saying, God, you're accountable to me, not the other way around. And this is the the crisis that people have in terms of believing in God because God can't be loving because I have trouble. Well, you know what? You have trouble even if God is loving. And much of the trouble is created by ourselves. So to many people, Jesus was the one who would help them and would solve their problems and would heal them. But when it came time to talk about being his disciple, which in that day, a disciple was not somebody that came to church once a week. A disciple was somebody that left their home, left their job, and followed after a master, lived with them, trained with them, was mentored by them, modeled them in terms of their life, modeled them in terms of of everything that they did, and were really subservient to their teaching. A disciple was someone who gave everything to follow. So when Jesus starts talking about being a disciple, people start to go, wait a second. And when Jesus starts to say, you're going to have to, in comparison to your love for me, hate your father and mother. And and, and you're going to have to die to self daily. And what I want you to do, because I've saved you, is I want you to confess me before all people. And people go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I signed up for. I want a God who loves me and will do things for me and meet my needs with really no expectation other than, you know, maybe just a little bit because you're God. But but really, I want the freedom to live however I want, but I want all the perks. That's what people think of God, and that's what people here in this text thought of God. Because the people's expectation, look back at the text, was not that he would be this kind of king. They didn't want a king who was spiritual. They wanted a king who was political and powerful. Someone who could displace Rome. Someone who was a warrior like King David. The Jews were a proud people. And it was demeaning to them to be under the thumb of Rome. And the religious leaders were telling them, we need to look for Messiah. We need to pray for the anointed one of God. But they were so personally and spiritually corrupt, their intention was not pure. What they really wanted was someone who could kick the Romans out of Israel because they were power hungry and the Romans were cramping them style, their style and they wanted authority over the people and to subtly kind of control them because the people weren't intelligent and couldn't read and they could tell the people that the Bible said whatever it said. So they wanted the Romans out, not to mention the fact that the Romans were Gentiles. And if there's one thing the Jews were proud of, it was their Judaism. It was the fact that they were the chosen people. It was the fact that they were not Gentiles. Because to them, Gentiles were scum. They were impure. They were unholy. They were nasty. And they were right in a lot of ways. So the fact that the Romans were there was a problem. And the people didn't realize how corrupt the political and spiritual leaders were. They had no idea. They didn't know that they had already compromised in so many ways with with what they were doing and that they were plotting with the Romans to try to kill Jesus. They had no idea that any was that going on. Kind of like our politicians, right? 
Our politicians have pure intentions, and they're all about the good of the country. I'm not being political. I'm being observational. There's integrity there, right? There's truth and loyalty. There's no side deals. There's nothing under the table. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And the political and spiritual leaders of Israel were doing exactly that. And they had kowtowed to the Romans. Herod had put idols in the temple. And the people were subject to Roman law, which superseded Jewish law. So everybody's saying, we want some political autonomy. We want to go back to the days where we have authority over our own nation. And then here comes Jesus, and he seems like the opportunity. He taught with power, and he was respected by many people, and he had this unique and unexplainable ability to radically change people's lives, and then add to it, there seemed to be something supernatural about him. So here's the opportunity. Here's the king. Who better to go after Rome than Jesus? Maybe he could clean house in Israel too. Maybe get some of these corrupt leaders out. So what happens here, look back at the text in Matthew 21, makes a lot of sense. The people see and hear him coming into Jerusalem, and the crowds are still following him. And as he moves into the city, the disciples start to get very excited by what's going on, and the people start to take their coats off and lay them on the ground, and they start to climb up into the trees and and strip the leaves off, and they start to wave them in the air and put them on the ground, and everybody's happy and praising God. This was not quiet. The people were yelling their praise. This was not in any way uh, anything less than raucous and loud. And the verb here in the text indicates this was not just a one-time cheer. Yay! This was a continuous shout of praise to the Lord to the extent that the Pharisees eventually come up and rebuke Jesus and tell, tell your people to shut up. Tell them to be quiet. Come on, this is too much. This is irreverent. This is out of place. This isn't right, mostly because it wasn't for them. But Jesus says to them in the Luke passage, look, I can tell them to be quiet. I'm not going to, but I could. But even if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to cry out praise to me. You can't stop what's going on. And, and let's let's not miss this spiritual principle here before we move on, because more often than not, our praise to the Lord needs to be loud and exuberant and unbridled. The text says that the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice shouting. It fits with the psalm that says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and what? Tell me the next word. All that is within me, bless His holy name. Do we worship like that? I was getting ready this morning. I was a little discouraged about a couple of things. And and I'm getting ready. And the Lord put that verse in my heart. And he said, Paul, bless the Lord, O your soul, with all that's in you. You can't hold back and say, well, I'm going to be discouraged about this. But then I'm going to go praise you. Bless the Lord with everything that you have. Now, these people are not saying, Hosanna. Praise the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. Right? Do you think that's what the text says? I want to yell it, but I'm scared I'm going to hurt some people. How do they praise God? Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes! 
worship like that? I mean, that's, that's how they're praising him. Not a show. Come on, we know better than that. A genuine appreciation of who the Lord is and what he's done. Now, a lot of you are uncomfortable right now. I would have been uncomfortable hearing this message 10 years ago because you say, that's not how I grew up. It's not my tradition. It's not my personality. I'm not outgoing like that. I don't, I don't like to be expressive that way. Of course, we don't think twice about screaming for a great play in sports in front of a bunch of strangers. We don't think twice about doing the chicken dance or doing YMCA, right? Oh, we'll do that. Roll out the barrel. Let's sing it. Oh, we get into church. I can't worship that way. That would draw attention to me. Or we talk about, oh, I went to this great place on vacation. It was awesome. Or I went to this incredible restaurant the other night. I had this steak. It was, it was, have you seen the picture of my grandkids? Can I show you all 476 pictures on my phone? But we can't openly praise the one who's redeemed us from sin. Come on. We can't do that. We hold back. And we're like the Pharisees. Forgive me for saying this. I'm calling out myself. We like the Pharisees and we say, you know, we need to keep it down. All that worship and praise is kind of distracting. I, I can't do that. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. That's what makes him happy. That's where he resides. Come on, let's praise him. Let's praise him. You want to be near God? You want to be in the presence of God? He says, praise me, and I'll inhabit that. I'll be right in the middle of that. You praise me with joy and without hesitation, I'll do that. I heard a pastor say the other day, and I thought this was so profound. He said, you need to rethink your position on being quiet. I said, oh boy, I'm convicted. There's another account in the Bible where people wave palms and worship God. It's in Revelation 7. Don't turn there. I'll just tell you about it. It was also written by John. And John says, I saw people worshiping in heaven, a multitude of people. I couldn't even count it. From every nation, every tribe, every people. Heaven isn't discriminatory, right? There's no white section and black section and Asian section. There's none of that in heaven. Every tongue, tribe, and nation worships together. That's how church should be. And he says, I saw them and they were worshiping and they were standing before the throne and before the lamb. I'm going to get choked up talking about it. They were clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, salvation to our God. That's what worship should be. That's what heaven's like. How do we worship now? Do we worship like that? I'm, listen, I'm calling myself out. Hesitant to raise our hands. Hesitant to sing out, even if our voice stinks. Hesitant to say, praise the Lord. What might the person next to me think? Who cares? They need to say it too. Hesitant to clap. Oh, we'll clap when the Packers score, but we don't want to clap for the Lord. Listen, I'm not, I'm not talking about a show. You know me well enough to know that. 
I'm not talking about a show. I'm talking about praise to God who has saved us, who took our place, who suffered for our sin, who redeemed us from our penalty. Jesus did that for us. Are our hearts moved by that? When was the last time we got emotional? I didn't plan on getting emotional this morning. When was the last time we got emotional about the grace of God? How many of you have seen God's not dead? Raise your hands. Let me see. Those of you that didn't raise your hands, go. Leave now. Go. Don't leave now. Stay. Go after the potluck. When that student was defending his faith, I found myself completely choked up by how awesome the mercy of God is. It was like I was hearing the gospel for the first time. And I was so humbled by the grace of God. Rethink your position on being quiet and unemotional. Jesus was emotional. Look at the text. And he had every reason to be, but he had reason to be for the exact opposite reason that we have. Turn over to Luke 19 just for a minute. Luke 19. Let's see how he was feeling. We talk about feelings a lot. Let's see how Jesus was feeling. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Let that set in for a second. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Wept being a strong word there. That's not just had tears in his eyes. He's sobbing. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they'll level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave it. Leave in you, excuse me, one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. There are only two instances in the Bible where Jesus wept. One was previously at Lazarus' tomb, and this is the other one. As he rides into Jerusalem, as he rides toward the cross, but he's not weeping about being crucified. He's not weeping like would we would be when we were facing that going, Oh my, I am really going to suffer. He is weeping because he knows that most people don't understand who he is and why he's come. Hosanna, that word that we sang earlier, that word that we say and read in the text, means save now. This is the moment when people should be praising him for coming to save mankind from sin. And the text suggests that some of the disciples were crying Hosanna for that purpose. They recognized him as Messiah who had come to save. But did the rest of the crowd say that? Or was there save us now? Was that a call for him to save them from Rome? Or save them from their problems? Or save them from their circumstances? Or whatever. You say, well, Paul, that's a little harsh. No, it's true. Because Jesus says to them, you don't get it. Your unbelief is blocking you. You can't see that right in front of you is the Messiah that you've been praying for because you will not believe. Do we see the heart of God here? He is not a harsh, 
unfeeling dictator. His interest is not just to suppress us and make us miserable like many people think. He's not uncaring. He's not unloving. He's not punitive. He's not looking for a reason not to show us mercy. How do I know that? I know that because Jesus wept over the city. He wept over the city. He was torn up by people's spiritual blindness. He knew that in 70 AD, Titus and the Romans would come in and they would level the city. Literally, according to this prophecy, not one stone would be left on the other. He knew that. He saw that. But that's not why he's crying. Israel had every advantage a nation could have. From God's presence to his leading to his provision to his promises. And they reject him over and over and over and over again. And now the son of God is riding into their capital and they don't even know it. Jesus wept. I believe for three primary reasons. Let me give you these and we'll pray. There are three reasons why Jesus wept. First of all, because he knew that most of the people's praise was temporary. He knew that most of the people's praise was temporary. Some knew him as Messiah, but many didn't. And that was really even beside the point. Because when he's betrayed in four days... All his disciples are going to run. The one who's the most loyal to him is going to curse and say, I never knew him. How dare you connect me with him? The one who had said hours before, Jesus, I'll go to the cross with you. You just tell me when and where I'll be right by you. When the time of pressure came, he swore and said, no, I don't know him. The crowds at this point seem all in. They're worshiping and praising and laying down their coats and putting down the palms and everything's wonderful. But Jesus knows in days almost all of them will turn when he goes to the cross. And the ones who do show up to the cross won't defend him. They'll mock him and they will ridicule him and they'll say, get off the cross and save yourself as he's dying for everyone's sins. Committing your life and my life to Jesus Christ is not easy. Let's say that up front so nobody's confused. It's not easy. And it requires that we trust him and yield to him even when there's a cost. But Jesus had said 16 chapters before, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are you when you are pure in heart. Blessed are you when you endure opposition and, and, and persecution from me. And if you declare me before men, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to declare you before my father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, you're on your own. Great is your reward in heaven if you will be my disciple. The crowd had a temporary affinity, but they weren't there to the end. Second, Jesus wept because the Pharisees were emblematic of mankind. The people who are most religious, so to speak, were also the most self-righteous. That means exactly what it says. 
their righteousness was based on themselves. The Pharisees knew scripture. They knew all the prophecy. They should have been the first ones in line. They should have said, hey, crowd, this is Messiah. Look at the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. It says that the king, the Messiah, is going to come in riding a donkey. Well, guess what? We've counted the days from Zechariah's prophecy. Here is Jesus. He's proven himself, and he's on a donkey. Everybody put your coats down. This is the king. They didn't do that, did they? Their hearts are so far from God that they rebuke him and say, tell your disciples to be quiet. At the same time, they're standing over to the side going, how are we going to kill him? This is the religious people. Man wants God on his own terms, if at all. But if the Lord, but the Lord doesn't answer to us because there is none who is righteous. It is by grace that we're saved through faith in Christ. Not our works. Our works are inadequate. And once Jesus gets to Jerusalem, and we didn't read the second passage, but you know it. Once he gets to Jerusalem, he sees the evidence of how inadequate we are. He goes into the temple and people are selling animals in the temple, unclean animals, and making a profit from it. They're not praying. They're not worshiping. They're not preparing. Hey, here comes the king. Here comes the Messiah. The Pharisees told him what was going to happen. Look at the crowd. You can see the Mount of Olives from the temple. And, and they don't, they, they see him coming and they're going about their business. There's no preparation of worship whatsoever. And the people are so spiritually hungry. Verse 48 says they hung on his every word, but they were sheep without a shepherd because no one was telling them the truth. Listen, this is the calling that God left to us. Go into the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. What better week to start that than now? Simply saying to somebody, come to church with me. And if they look at you and swear at you and say, there's no way I'm going to your church, then say, God bless you. You're still invited and go to the next person. How are they going to hear if we don't tell them? Why did Jesus weep? Look at the last thought. He wept because he foresaw the destruction of unbelief. This was physical and spiritual. It was physical in the sense that Israel had largely rejected the Lord for centuries, even despite warnings and disciplines and even taking them into exile. They were still looking for somebody else. They still are. You can go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. I've been there four times. You can go to the Wailing Wall today and there are devout Jews praying and bobbing their heads and putting little pieces in the paper on the wall and the pieces of paper say, send Messiah and Messiah's already come. And they're still praying and bobbing their heads and waiting and waiting and waiting, but he's already been there. And he says to them, you don't even get it. In 40 years, years, this city will be completely destroyed. And then there was a spiritual unbelief and a spiritual destruction because sin had blinded them. It blinds anyone who rejects Christ and they can't see the goodness and availability of God's grace right in front of them to be saved. You have to believe your trust has to be in the sufficiency of Christ to save you that you can't save yourself, that we're all inadequate without faith. It is impossible. Unbelief destroys, but faith saves. And in that moment, days before the cross, 
Jesus looks at the city, and it's a microcosm of all of mankind, and he can't hold it back. He weeps. He weeps. Jesus is crying. He sees the city as evidence of the loss of some man. And we can stop the story there. This could be it. Except that was not the only emotion that Jesus felt in that moment. Turn over to Hebrews 12 just for a second. I didn't plan on turning, but let's do it anyway. This will really emphasize the point. Because there's a greatness to this scene, even as our hearts are broken, as Jesus cries over mankind. That's not the picture of Jesus that we're left with. Because the cross this morning, how many know this is true, is not still holding his body. And the tomb is not still holding his body. It is empty and he is alive. He didn't die without victory. He died to gain victory. So even as he weeps over Jerusalem and even as he faces the sure agony of the cross in a couple days and we know there was another emotion going on. We see it here in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the next word, tell me, joy, tell me louder. Joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, he was broken. Yes, his heart wept. Yes, he was sad about the losses of people. But that wasn't the end. He went to the cross with joy because he knew his sacrifice would bring eternal life to all who believe. He knew that. So he doesn't come in as a warrior on a stallion making a show of himself because that's not what was needed. We needed a humble, gentle Savior riding on a donkey. And that choice of transportation was very symbolic and very significant. But Jesus came to serve. Can you imagine the reality of that thought that is so far beyond our comprehension that we can't even think about it? It's stunning. He took on the form of a bondservant to be sacrificed for us. He took my sin and your sin on himself and he went to the cross with joy. How could that be? He went to the cross with joy because he knew it would redeem us from sin and death. Jesus wept because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why would he come if that wasn't his intention? Why would he go to the cross if that wasn't why he was here? He is able, he is sufficient to break sin's curse and hold on our lives and to transform us to be holy like him. Listen, if you have never trusted him, if you have never put your faith in him, you need to know that truth this morning that he wept for you and he wept for me. Because our sin is great, but his grace is greater. And whatever you're stuck in this morning, whatever sin is controlling you, however much you've rebelled, whatever you've done in your life, it is not too much. His grace can cover it all. And if you want to know more about that this morning, I would love to talk to you about that at lunch. Any person in this room would love to talk to you about that lunch. If you say, what does it mean to trust in Jesus? We will tell you. And we will help you understand that. And today, uh, April 13, 2014, your life can be changed for all eternity. You can walk out of this building a completely different person forever. And listen, those of us who trust in him and love him, 
Is our praise, is our devotion temporary like the crowd? Is it conditional? Are we holding back or are we going to follow him all the way? Jesus said, no man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You're going to be my disciple. You go all the way with me. I need to be your life because I'm worthy of it. And I'm telling you this morning, he is. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of our trust. And he's worthy of our praise. Praise his name. Let's close our eyes. Let's just take a minute. It's early. We got lunch already planned. You and the Lord this morning. What part of the crowd are you? The Pharisee, skeptical off to the side, critical. The crowd who cheered one minute and yelled for him to be killed the next. Or a disciple who's going to go all the way, all the way. What a week to recognize the grace of God. What a week to recognize the sufficiency of God for our lives The fact that his grace is enough. And I pray this week would be a time of praise and adoration to him because he is so good. Lord, we love you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can call on your name and you answer like we just saw. We thank you that we can praise you openly this morning and declare your greatness. We thank you for confidence that you are sufficient, so sufficient to save us and to redeem us and to transform us forever. And Lord, we exalt you this morning. We praise you for that. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're also our Savior and our friend. And Lord, we love you and we honor you for this work you've done. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that has never trusted in you, that today would be their day of salvation, that today their heart would be awakened by what your spirit has been speaking to them and they would trust in you and that they would not leave this place without talking to one of us and praying and receiving you as Savior forever. And Lord, for those of us that do trust in you, may our hearts be awakened. Lord, this can't be another week. Our praise should be effusive because of all that you have done. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Prepare our hearts this week for what we will remember. And thank you that we can remember it. Thank you that Jesus is alive. We praise you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.